are for another episode of Monkey Business. We are very, very excited for everything that's happening in um, 2020 and things have been kind of crazy around here. So I feel like we haven't gotten to one of these for a little bit. So we apologize for not for the delay in episodes. But um, but there are a lot of cool things happening in 2020 that we'll be very excited to share with you over the coming months. Um, but in the meantime, something that we wanted to do this year for this podcast was to make it more, um, more beneficial to all of our listeners. So if you follow us on Instagram at eat snow monkey from time to time, we'll ask uh, what topics you want to hear about, what, what might be of interest to you, what about our journey or experiences, different parts of the business like marketing and, and, um, marketing comes to mind for me first off at sales. What else do we do here? Um, finance, <laughs> finance, pay the bills, all that fun General stuff. General startup. Yeah. So, so today Rachel and I are going to do one of the topics that we got from, um, our Instagram followers. And that was about fundraising. Everyone wanted to know a little bit more about, um, about, how the whole fundraising process works. I think it's one that's really daunting uh, yeah. for most people. I think Rachel can speak to that the best because she's handled all of our fundraising here at Snow Monkey. So we have Rachel here to do a little Q&A on fundraising 101. Yeah, hello, hello. Um, I'm glad that this was the topic that most people wanted to hear about um, because it definitely was the topic that took up the most of my brain space growing Snow Monkey because there's so many things that you really have to decide between and there's a lot of factors that tie into the long-term plan of the business and when you're in the early ideation stage and you're just starting out, it's really hard to think about you know five years from now at the time uh, of your exit, perhaps how much control you want to have or what kind of valuation or if you're what, what exit strategy you have. It's just like, there's so many variables that come between like that initial moment. Like, you know, when I was sitting in the dorm room to when we potentially exit, um, to think about. So I'm really glad that there were a lot of people around me that I asked for advice that, that shared kind of like the key factors that I should always like keep in the back of my mind as everything grows to make sure that we don't get to a point where we're like, Oh crap. Had we known this, you know, six months ago, we would have done something totally different. Yeah. It saves a lot of founders from, from some horror stories. Yeah. Yeah. I think you did a really great job reaching out to people beforehand and just being like, how do I navigate this? Because it's not something they teach you in school. Like they, no, <laughs> it's, it's not accounting 101. Yeah, like it's there's just nothing that they really train you for that can be like, hey, here's how you go about finding people to give you money to fund your business. Yeah, um, maybe like in some entrepreneurship specialty programs, they, they do that, but like if you go to general business school, yeah, that's not really a, a commonly taught skill. So that being said, I am starting my clock for 20 minutes and I have some questions to ask you. So here we go. Vamos. So we kind of touched on this a little bit, but when you decided, okay, hey, we need money in order to get this train moving. Um, 
where did you start? Um, you know, everything from how did you decide how much money to raise? Um, who did you talk to first? What was what were kind of your initial steps in gearing up to go out and actually raise that first tranche of money? Yeah, I would say um, I'm always thinking about how much we should raise, when we should raise, because cash flow is always a big thing. So I think it's way easier to think about it in stages of the business. So if we're talking like initial, initial days, um, like getting it from dorm room to getting more proof of concept and then scaling it so that we could have the first product in market. That was how I looked at it. I just said, all right, what are the milestones that we're working towards that also are proof of concept for third parties? Because the big thing when you're raising money is that the third party needs to believe in what you're doing. And if you don't have any proof, it can be very hard. Sometimes people have fantastic ideas and people just invest in founders with a proven track record. But I mean, I wasn't even out of college yet. Um, and so it's super high risk. Understandably, no one's going to be like, oh, you're going to reinvent ice cream and you're going to graduate in a couple of months and you have no food background. Sure. Let's throw like a couple hundred thousand at you. You know, it doesn't work <laughs> that way. Um, so that's why we actually decided to go the route of doing venture competitions to get a grant and also to raise through Kickstarter because Grant with a grant, we didn't have to give up any equity. And I think it's really important to save as much equity as possible, especially in the early stages, because in the early stages, when, when you fundraise, you end up having to give more equity since people are taking a bigger risk. Um, and then with Kickstarter, the great thing about that was also that one, we weren't giving away equity, but two, it was really testing that proof of concept and you're gaining that group of early adopters. And that was then having the Kickstarter success, having the success with, uh, success with getting the grants, then actually being able to have that money to bring Snow Monkey into market. We were then able to have a product, get some sales data, and then start prepping for that first early seed round. Um, so I think how to decide how much money to raise has to be thought of in stages because there's no way to really tell. Like, of course, you can sit there and write like the big, robust business plan, but I think 99% of founders will tell you that things don't really go to plan and you have to pivot and a five-year plan is essentially useless. <laughs> of course, you got to have the vision, but, but you're not going to know what it's going to cost. Ready for that vision to look like something totally different. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's what you did kind of leading up to that seed round and... You also touched on something that I want to go back to later, which is the first time founders dilemma. So don't let me forget okay. that. But then leading into the seed rounds, so then you get through the grants, you get through the Kickstarter, you have this proof of concept, and then you raised a seed round. And full disclosure, all we've done so far is a seed round. Yep. So this talk isn't necessarily like, this is how you get hundreds of millions of dollars from um, like some major VC. So... This is kind of getting to the point where maybe a huge VC does want to look to you. Like, what do you do in between having zero and having, you know, that like three to five M in revenue where you can start taking intense VC money without yep. giving away your entire company? And I actually think this is actually the most important part of the fundraising conversation. We were talking offline earlier and you made that great point that you go to all these panels and you get advice from big institutions and they give... They're like, oh yeah, we invest in businesses starting at like the 5 million, 10 million revenue range. And then this is what we encourage the businesses to think of. And all the businesses that are like just starting out are under those like 5, 10 M 
revenue are sitting there thinking, how the hell do I get to that range? What do I do in the interim? Yeah. And, and how do I fund a company yeah. to be able to make Yeah. That? How do you fund the company before anyone's willing to actually invest in you because you're then much lower risk at that point, right? Everyone wants to follow a winner. Yeah. Not many people are willing to throw something into some black hole. Definitely. So that being said, what, what did you take with you going into this seed round race? Like, what did you take from that proof of concept? How did you formulate that narrative to be something that was attractive? Obviously still very risky, but attractive and mitigated some of the risk yeah. that an investor might have. And put that together to present it as, you know, beautiful, like, hey, this is what we've got. This is what we're doing. Um, presentation for people. And then also, how did you decide what those terms were going to look like? How did you yeah. decide what that seed round package, you know, me giving you money for the company, what was I getting in return as right. that investor? Yeah, no, that was incredibly tough because we knew we needed money and we said we were going to raise a million dollars because again, we looked at it from a milestone standpoint, you know, we need a million to get us to the next like big milestone so that we could then have a larger round. So looking at that, um, that seed pool, um, it all got triggered actually because a few of our advisors said, Hey, you know, we've, we've been working closely with you. You're asking the right questions. You're sharing the progress. We actually want to invest. So it was really flattering that that request came in and we had a few initial investors who were willing to work with us and understand that they were the first investors. And the big thing that kept coming up was they were all saying, okay, well, what's the valuation? And there really was no good way to decide on the valuation because one, we were really small. We'd only been in market for a short period of time. So there wasn't much historical data. If we were to do a true valuation based off of multiples of revenue or EBITDA, it would be very low because we were super small. So it would kind of, it wouldn't really justify the future promise of the company because even today, like with Snow Monkey, you know, we have a lot of accomplishments under our belt, but What's really exciting about us is what's coming in the future, all the revenue to come, all the partnerships, all the like big expansion plans. So doing a current day valuation has to take those things into account and you can't put a value on that, right? It's, it's incredibly hard. And so finally we decided, you know what? We were throwing valuation numbers around and no one could really agree on it. There wasn't a good formula. And we said, forget it. We're not going to peg a valuation to this because it's too small. There's no comparable public company that we can kind of lean on to look for some for some valuation inspo. So we just said, we're going to raise off of a convertible note. And um, what's going to happen is at the time of our next funding round, the investors of this seed round will just receive a 20% discount off of the next funding round. That way they're getting rewarded for taking their risk. Uh, we don't have to sit here and deliberate like what a fair valuation is and just focus on growing the company and trying to get the highest possible valuation for the next funding round. And then comes the point of like Snow Monkey and like our internal team, we're always focused on getting the highest growth, having the highest valuation for the next funding round. But that's not necessarily fair to the early investors who've taken a risk on us and all of a sudden say our next, we hit some crazy like exponential growth and they're like, oh, Snow Monkey's valued at 20M then these investors who took all the risk and were with us from day one, essentially, or day 1.5, um, would get a tiny piece of the company. So you put in a valuation cap that then protects them. 
And that way it's saying like, you know, say you put the value cap at like 5 million, that's saying even if the valuation of the company at the future round is 20 million, those specific early investors who are part of the seed round will convert off of that 5 million value cap. And that way it protects them. We don't have to think about a ton of stuff. Um, you asked a good question of like who I talk to to actually figure this out. So I talk to other entrepreneurs, other founders, other angel investors to understand what they had seen work really well. And someone who was incredibly helpful was actually Justin Khan, one of the partners of Y Combinator, who's a serial founder and entrepreneur. And he actually invented the safe note. And um, that was the convertible note that we engaged in. And it worked really well for us. Yeah, definitely. I think that was a good way for us to end up doing it because I think like there's also a lot of time like you're experiencing it now getting like a formal valuation on a company is oh like God. the most time consuming thing ever so would you recommend that convertible note for other entrepreneurs like did it save you you feel like a bunch of hassle in terms of having to go about getting things or was it not so much less of a hassle just less of a of a risk you were taking in terms of valuing the company. I thought it was perfect because it allowed, it was practical in understanding that at early stages of a company's life, a lot of the times they're not going to be these easy ways to put a valuation and having a convertible note off of a future valuation is really helpful because it allows everyone to focus on growing the company to hit future milestones. Um, and I think also like as a, f when, when I was fundraising in that, that early stage, it became like a second job because all of a sudden you're courting like tons of different investors. You have people that send you a whole list of questions. You then have to go answer all these questions. Fair enough. Like everyone needs to do their due diligence, but sometimes you get the investors who are like, Oh, what's your three year revenue forecast? And I'm like, I can send that to you. Like. I've done it, but frankly, it's a load of BS because there's so many variables that are coming in. So I think it's also really important to talk to the right type of investors, investors who are used to investing in small stage companies, because they're going to understand that they don't actually want to waste your time by asking you all these questions for when you're like way down the road, but instead really get to know you as a founder, the beliefs, what are like the, the goals that are in the short term and understand how you operate and if you're going to leverage the right resources. Those are the people to talk to um, because, and also like from a pressure standpoint, the people that technically like high net worth individuals who are okay, you know, if they never see their hundred thousand again and their life doesn't change because something went wrong with your company, that those are good people to talk to as well because otherwise it's a ton of pressure on both parties. Absolutely. It's way too much risk and like, you know, you don't really want to go to bed thinking like, oh my God, if I don't, if I don't get this done, like Peter is not gonna be able to feed his kids. Like that is yeah. not the place yeah. you and want anyone to be. There's enough pressure as it is, regardless of who it is, yeah. but it's always a lot worse if someone's life is depending on you. And I mean, we already have that with like, you know, not our employees, but you know, our employees yeah, are of course depending. Yeah. We're responsible for the company. So at least it is one last person that can't have dinner. Yeah. 
<laughs> we all ate, yeah, full disclosure. We, we all ate. <laughs> Everyone gets paid on time. And no one's on at risk. <laughs> but, um, okay, so then going back to that first-time founder dilemma, dilemma, because I think a lot of people run into that, is, like, if I started, you know, let's say, I started Airbnb, like, I could probably go out and start whatever company I wanted after that, and people would just invest in me. Yeah. Not even, like, off the idea that I have now, but just because I already did it with Airbnb and I, you know, am a proven founder. But how do you get those people to believe in you the first time? And I think every first-time founder runs into that where everyone's just so skeptical of you. And especially when you're young and you have no background in doing what it is you want to do, how do you... How do you show people that they should believe in you and believe in your idea, regardless of the fact that you are a first-time founder? Yeah, that's an amazing question because that is probably, like, the hardest hurdle because that you can't even get the engine started. Like, mm-hmm. you are just kind of in this, in this self-feedback loop of no one knows what my idea is. It's just me, and I have nothing in market, and I have <laughs> no one behind me, and... I could literally walk away from all this tomorrow and no one would have any idea, right? It's just like there's nothing behind you. I think, um, oh, man. You just have to go out there and talk to absolutely everyone about your idea. And any connection, any introduction that someone wants to make, you just take every single opportunity and see how it can be beneficial and anytime someone gives you any opportunity to actually prove yourself, you have to take that and you have to nail it. So for us, it was having Boston University had their entrepreneurship um, innovation lab over the summer. And at the end of it, there was a venture competition and the winner would win money. That was the first time we ever got any type of like third party public endorsement, essentially. And we ended up getting... 20 grand that was huge um and then we boasted about that on kickstarter and you just have to take every all your small wins and celebrate them and use them to keep building your story i think the other thing is i mean i'm like a total minority right like i'm a young female immigrant founder who has no food experience like statistically you wouldn't bet on me you wouldn't bet on our team Right. Um, But we have built a very unique model and culture and we've proved it now. And now we're getting celebrated for the things that make us unique. But at the very beginning, the things that made me unique were absolutely what people doubted me for. And I think for that, you have to also really rely on that human connection. Um, I spoke, I went, I really leveraged my network. I really went out and I think when people would sit down the people who believed in me were like, you know, after speaking to you, after hearing your vision, after hearing your perseverance, after hearing your background, I believe in you. And if this is what you're going to set your mind to, then I believe like it will go somewhere. So in those early days, like technically the biggest asset your business has is you and you have to sell yourself because good ideas are plenty, right? If you can't execute, then what are they worth absolutely so you feel that like simply 
giving people as much, not simply, but like giving people as much confidence as they can about the wins that you did have and really celebrating those and like boasting about them, you know, screaming them from the rooftops and being like, look, there's someone behind me, there's someone behind me, getting that momentum to kind of just keep on rolling with every investment and then also FaceTime with people. Yeah. And any type of demand that you can get, like Kickstarter was amazing because we showed demand. We were like hundred percent funded in four days. 180% funded overall orders from X amount of states, from X amount of people from this demographic. Those are like real sales. Like no one can take that away from you. Mm -hmm. So just trying to get any type of opportunity, even if it's like I went to the local farmer's market for one day and I made $2,000. Like that says something, right? Um, Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah. I think that makes it's it's so scrappy, but like we did it. We mean we ran our own demos. We put things on the website. You try, you fail. You try to get any type of any type of win. Um, And I know a lot of the times, like what helped me a lot was I've had countless investors actually say they love investing in athletes because even when they're a first time founder, if there's no track record from a professional side they understand like the type of characteristics based on what else what other endeavors you have so whether it's athletics like arts like whatever it is that's something to show for your character and your work ethic those are important that makes a lot of sense because they're looking for like focus drive and perseverance and that's pillars of being an athlete yeah so that's interesting so then also you know find the points about yourself be like yeah i'm a first-time founder i acknowledge all of these attributes about my background that maybe make me riskier than other people you could be investing in but also look at what I've achieved in other places of my life and that shows like these skills that maybe you would be looking for in an actual multi-time yeah multi-founder serial entrepreneur and I think you nail it with also like just having the humility to say like I know I don't have the experience that you're traditionally looking for, but this is how I make up for it. And this is why I'm the right person. This is why we're the right team. This is why like we're, we're the people to bring this example, uh, to bring this idea to life. Um, absolutely. And maybe even being like, and this is who I'm going to lean on. Perfect. So we're, (laughs) we're running out of time already. This is blown by, but something I wanted to skip to now is like, okay, so you found the people that you want to be your investors. You found the people that um, that were going to support you. But how did you decide that those were the best people to be the investors in the company? Because that's obviously, it's a two-way street. You know, someone can want to invest in you, but maybe you don't view them as your most strategic investor, someone that you really want involved in the company. How do you decide between all of those different kinds of money that's floating out there between you know, VC money, private equity, debt you can even take, or just going out and doing like a traditional, what people call friends and family. How do you decide who amongst those partners is going to be best for your company, especially at such a critical time in its lifespan? Yeah, I think that that's such a personal question based on founder and company needs. I think as a founder, or if there's several founders, um, you need to decide one you know, like further down the line, how much control do we want to still retain? Not only from a monetary perspective, but from an executive perspective. Like, do you want to be working for yourselves? Do you want to be working for someone else? Um, Like I know for us, like 
we are able to actually execute and make the final decisions because we need to make sure that everything we do at Snow Monkey is super genuine and authentic. So thinking about control is one thing. And then also thinking about the support that you need. So we know exactly what our skill sets are in-house. We know what we need to leverage from outsource partners. We know what type of advice we need. So I think it's really important to look at what kind of money is this? Is it strategic money? Is it just a check and no one bothers you? Is this someone that you can call all the time, a group of people you can call all the time and be like, hey, we're looking for a new manufacturer or hey, we're looking at raising money again. Can you help us with this term sheet? Um, or hey, we're trying to get to LeBron. Like, can you do an intro, <laughs> right? Whatever like needs you have as a company that you don't have already, technically like look for money that comes with those strategic benefits. Perfect. That makes that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I think that's one of the the hardest thing. And I think people too that we've spoken to as well, they're like, oh I wish I didn't take money from so and so. Like I think that's one of the most common regrets I hear from people is like, oh I I took this person's money too soon yeah. and they just became like a nightmare to my company. Yeah. I wish I had vetted that partner. Yeah. And it's better. so easy in the moment to be like Yes, we need money. You're in. You're in. Fantastic. Because you get more no's than yeses. Mm-hmm. But if you can hold out and just make sure that everyone, even individuals who want to be involved, it's flattering. But if they don't have something strategic to offer or this isn't really something they like to do, it's not a good fit for both parties. Like we really look at it as a team mentality. Anyone in our early stage round, is a, we look at them as a team that we can leverage on and they love being involved in our growth. Amazing. Okay, last question, then we'll cut it off. Is there one thing you wish you had known before you set out and started fundraising for the first time? Like, something someone had warned you about, something that you had in your experience, something that went one way that you expect to go a totally different way? What do you wish you had had known in retrospect? What do I wish I had known in retrospect? Um... These are all things that I commonly heard, but I didn't realize the the true weight and importance of it. I think these are several things to more that I wish someone had told me, but really like drilled it into my <laughs> head is that what you just touched on, you really need to think about who is investing, what kind of relationship, look at the relationship. Don't look at it as a transaction. Um, And I'm glad that we were quite cognizant of it, but we could have been even more like diligent, I think, and like strict, but it's really hard in those stages where you're like, I really need money. (laughs) Um, So just really thinking about that relationship and also thinking about like what you can give back to the investor, like what are they getting out of it? Not just they're giving me something. I I think thinking about it as that two way street is big. I think um, really, even though it's hard and there are a lot of variables to try to do some sort of simulation on how much money generally you think it's going to need to get you to whatever you define as the promised land and how much you're willing to give up. And when you hit certain percentages in equity, what does that then mean for you as a founder, for you as a partner? Because if you really, if this is like a value-based mission-driven company, and you all of a sudden don't have the authority to actually make sure that everything is still growing in line with those values, that's going to like kill your soul. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's nothing worse than someone coming in and tell you, telling you how to do it. Yeah, or all of a sudden, like, you hear these crazy stories where people are like, and then all of a sudden I was fired from my own company. And you're like, what? Yeah. Like, these things happen if you're not paying attention. Because it's so easy to be like, oh, my God, we just raised $10 million. And then it's like, all right, who are you? <laughs> Surprise, you're now the intern. Yeah, exactly. Um, and keeping equity, like, close to your chest. Like, people stress this all the time. As you grow, all of a sudden, it's not just, like, little pieces of equity. It's just, like, all of a sudden you're like, oh, there went 20%. And... Okay. Yeah. Uh, and you 20. have to be comfortable that if that is what goes out the door, you have to be like, well, I know that that yeah. was like the best 20% I've ever given away. Exactly. And thank God I was really careful with everything prior and this was worth the 20% because you can't just go around like throwing equity around like, yeah. you know. No equity for Christmas. No, it's not, it's not a Halloween candy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anything else that you think? we need to touch on. I know I had other questions written down. So um, maybe we do a I think two. it's I think there are a lot of people who really get stuck with this because it's oh my god, it's like your livelihood and it's your baby and it's very difficult because there's tons of options and when you don't like you said in business school like we don't go through the specifics of this and when you don't have that information, it's almost paralyzing. So I think it's really important to stress that like we mean it when we say, like, this is a snow monkey tribe and we're, like, one DM, one email away. Like, if people are stuck on something or you have a specific question, it's, like, easy to reach out to us. I'd rather you guys, like, reach out to us and us spend the time answering your question than you to make, like, a wrong move or yeah. a move that you regret or no move at all. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. Anyone, like, we're here for you guys. We've been through it and we've learned. We can't promise that we're always going to have the absolute correct answer but we can tell you as much as we can about our experience and maybe missteps we took or things that were successful for us obviously there isn't a one-size-fits-all policy but but we're here to tell you what we did and if it's going to work maybe for you but all right we're going to wrap it on up and we hope all of you enjoyed the episode don't forget to follow us on at eat snow monkey um, it's on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Mainly follow us on Instagram. It's where we where we thrive. Um, but yeah, hope everyone has a good week. Talk to you later. Peace. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Eat Snow Monkey. Monkey Business is brought to you by the Snow Monkey Kingdom and produced by Autumn Our theme song is brought to you by Alex English.